John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 825.jb1534, certificate number 33423. Thomas Nast. hard thing to explain to our future listeners is that uh, we're living in a particular age where honesty and candor is valued above almost all else in parenting. You huh. are you are straight with your kids. When they ask a question, you give them the right answer, even if it's simplified. You know, even if you, you, you're just matter of fact and you say, well, that's called sex, and that's where babies come from. And then you you amplify as time goes on. Do you think that that is something cultural within your sort of urban college-educated community and not necessarily universally true? Oh, yeah. When I say we, I always mean upper-middle-class Americans. <laughs> right. Because who upper else? Upper-middle-class urbanites. Like, like, who else is listening to podcasts? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've always been very pleasantly surprised at the number of listeners to this show that are heartland Americans living there in Pumpkin Town, USA, every day walking their dogs, saying hi to all their neighbors by name. It's true. How are they getting the show now? That's crazy. You know, it's supposed to be a time capsule letter for the future, and yet people all over this great land are uh, telling us when they go to some beach we mentioned or some pumpkin farm. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It <laughs> they, is a conundrum. They got an early release. <laughs> they, like they got it from the radio station. We're on pirate satellite. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. But I but I do think it's more important than it used to be because really people would just lie to kids all the time. Yeah, right. Well, because kids weren't considered fully human and weren't... Which is not wrong. Weren't necessary. I mean, adults didn't consider them necessary, right? A kid just minded their business until well, as we they said grew before, up. Yes, as we said before, you couldn't get attached because you were probably going to lose six of the 15. Right. You didn't. But, you didn't even name them all. It's like having puppies. But even when we were kids, I mean, your parents didn't devote as much time and attention to listening to your dull, wandering, droning stories as we certainly do to our children. Absolutely not. Maybe you, you sit in and let your kids, what, draw on your face probably, right? <laughs> we're both post-Benjamin Spock babies, and yeah. we still did not have the kind of uh, 
empathetic relationship that parents are supposed to have with their kids today. But with one exception, the odd thing about our time is there's one lie that it is culturally acceptable to tell your children, and it's the weirdest one of all. That Santa Claus is real. That a fat man in a uniform is going to come down your chimney and give gifts. Would you? All evidence to the contrary. Would you call it a uniform? I mean, that <laughs> seems like a little bit of a stretch. It's a costume. But oh, it's I not, think it's a uniform. It's not a uniform. Uh, okay, does a, a, a doorman wear a uniform? Yes. So Santa wears a, an outfit of a particular color and cut. Yes. He only wears it for work. When you see well, him, when oh, you see okay. him relaxing at the North Pole with Mrs. Claus making cookies, does he have the sure, full gear no, on? He's got suspenders. He's on. usually stripped down. He's got the suspenders. But I would call it a costume because a doorman has fellow doormen who are also wearing the same uniform to identify themselves to people driving up to the hotel. Here's the difference, John. If you're dressed as Santa, it's a costume. If Santa's dressed as Santa, it's a uniform. I don't know if I'm gonna. I mean, a uniform. That just I I, I think does it seem too military to you? I think you're revealing something about. Your relationship to older to, to men. Santa? Yeah. <laughs> that I like a very regimental relationship you do. You're with like, Santa. He's putting his uniform on. <laughs> he's coming down the chimney. Oh, he's got those big black leather boots again. <laughs> the belt is so thick. On yeah. You, on you, it's a costume, but on him, it's a uniform. <laughs> yeah, anyway. This, this is now a show about leather daddy Santa people. I had this thought of walking down the street because, you know, my daughter's almost eight. I don't remember when there was one particular Christmas. According to my mom, I was not willing to let go of Santa for a long time. I think my sister was over it. You were seven, but you were 17. <laughs> I was 17. I was like, tell me it's real. But I remember being old enough to be awake and reading a book at midnight to hear my mom get up out of her bed, go out the front door, get in her car and drive away. Well, that's a bleak Christmas story. She never came back. <laughs> and I raised my sister by killing squirrels in the yard. <laughs> and that's why you're Santa. No, she went up to the neighbor's house where she had hidden a gift for Christmas. Because you guys were gift snoopers. Which was a bird. She bought us oh. a, uh, some kind of parakeet or budgie or something. And it was going to make noise. Yeah. We had to do that with it. We gave our kids a puppy a couple of years ago and it, it had to have a third. We took the puppy to a third location. And so, oh, since she was a single mom, she had to like leave us alone to go up to the neighbor's house and get this bird and bring it back. A very latchkey Christmas. And I heard it all go down and I was, and, and put it together like, aha, I see now there is no Santa. There's only my mom. And I was relieved by it. Until then, had this never occurred to you? No, it had occurred to me. And in fact, I think I had been, I think at one point when I was little, because my mom's no nonsense, I'd said, mom, is there a Santa Claus? And she said, no. <laughs> and, I, and I started to cry. <laughs> And she said, I was just kidding. Of course there is. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> that classic joke. Yeah. So she, she walked it back. But my son, by the way, got in trouble at his, like, I think kindergarten or first grade class for starting to tell kids there was no Santa. Because you told them right up front. You said there's no Santa when they were four years old. No, I didn't. Actually, I may have the details of that wrong. My son got told by his cousin who oh, ruined it. And I think maybe it was my daughter that was spreading the word at at first grade. You only have one kid, so you don't have this, you don't have the cross-eye bear of actually not remembering right. which these which two totally one? unlike kids, a boy and a girl, did this particular <laughs> thing five or ten years ago. But did you believe in Santa? So my parents did a very canny thing where they kind of pretended it was um, some kind of Leonard Nimoy unsolved mystery, like the Loch Ness Monster. Oh. Like, nobody really knows. Could there be a mysterious man? We've never explored the wastes of the North Pole. It's hard to say. So it was like some uh, Time Life books, uh, Tales of the NK, which is good because it gives the parents less complicity, I think, for mom and dad. Right. 
I had, I had a, a roommate in college who, we had a prankster roommate. And at one point, some prank happened and we were like skeptical. We were like, no, this is a prank, right? Like what's really going to happen if we open the door? And he's like, no, 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 no. And sure enough, we opened the door and the prank we predicted was there in the, you know, it was a bucket of confetti snails or... in the shower or whatever it was. Oh, that's and, a great prank. And my <laughs> classic, classic <laughs> collegiate prank. This was 1921. We were all wearing big raccoon coats. Snails in the shower. <laughs> and my, I remember my roommate being like, you know, when we all know it's a prank and you keep telling us it's not, that's not a prank. It's just a lie. Oh, and I think that's actually true. Wow, this is some BYU level uh, <laughs> BYU wisdom, <laughs> BYU trolley problem. <laughs> <laughs> if there are snails in the shower, but no one sees them, and I think that's in general true. Like if a kid keeps saying, "Wait, is Santa real?" and mom and dad keep going, "Like, yeah, yeah, he is." At some point, you're not keeping the magic alive. You're you're just telling a lie because the kid obviously suspects, or he, he or she wouldn't keep asking. So I have the same problem you do, right? I'm a urban wimp or an urban, I don't know what we are. So I didn't want to ever say to her like, Santa's real and he's watching you all year. But I keep the dream alive just by being, I guess, obtuse. When she asks questions about Santa, I go, interesting, tell me more. I do the same thing I do in all of her when she asks me any question. Look, a squirrel. I, no, I ask her a follow-up question like, why do you think that? Or what? tell me more about this story that you've heard. And so she kind of keeps Santa going on her own, but she does not give the signs of someone who truly believes that Santa is real. Because if, if there really was someone coming down the chimney into her home and delivering presents. You would, you would do a Norman Rockwell thing. You would sneak out to look like you were in a Sears commercial. Well, or something you would act a certain way. And I think she just, she's never given me the side eye about it. She just sort of accepts it passively, but she's much more excited about the Easter bunny because that's a thing that you can kind of hunt. I mean, and, and that, kill. That's something from our family. <laughs> the yeah, most whatever. dangerous game of all, the <laughs> every, Easter Bunny. Every year at Easter, we go out and kill rabbits. But, but yeah. So I feel like she's on the cusp of saying, like, can we just stop pretending that Santa comes down the comes down the flue of our like built-in fireplace or whatever, you know, our electric. Yeah, we fireplace. yeah we don't have a like we have a fake gas fireplace with yeah. not even a chimney. Yeah. So. Yeah, and it, it does create some awkward transition moment. I guess you want the kid to gradually start to think, oh, this is just a silly tradition that mom and dad have been propping up for some reason. I need to now see it in a metaphorical light. But I did have that very strong feeling that Christmas was a holy holiday. We weren't religious, but the one time of year where, where the power behind religion, which is that, I mean... I don't know if that's the power behind religion, but that you are spooked and also yeah. feel like yeah, that's a, it. I feel big, kind of merry. A big white man with a beard is watching you, <laughs> and will give you rewards or not based on your compliance. Yeah, right. You're like both scared in awe and also kind of titillated and excited. Uh, but you know, my mom and I would turn off all the lights and sit on the couch after Susan had gone to bed and watch the Christmas tree lights twinkle, Aww. and it was, you know, you really felt the magic of the darkest night of the year and the, that connection to something that felt cosmic or bigger. And yeah, I don't like when people, I think I said this recently on the show, I don't like when people put down the electric consumerist American Christmas, because I like the way we kind of quasi secularized it enough that everyone can kind of feel that little sense of awe and cheer. And what else do we have? Peace, goodwill. Peace, goodwill, right. That, that, you know, tonight is a holy night. I mean, you kind of, 
even in a completely secular world, it's nice to have a holy night, one at least, where you can feel maybe not like you have to apply all your science all the time. You're, you're suggesting that Santa is the deity if you're not religious on Christmas. Well, no, uh, we didn't sit there looking at the twinkling tree and thinking about Santa. We were thinking about, I mean, you know, the idea of baby Jesus is fairly well disseminated. You, you've heard of him? Baby Jesus. Did you know his work? I didn't know. I mean, he he wasn't quite like the baby on the ceiling in train spotting. There was <laughs> there was he but he was a baby that was like had some magic powers. It's very the, relatable to kids because there's a baby sleeping yeah. in a barn with animals. The, have you uh, have you been to Europe during Christmas time? I never have. It's a very similar feeling. They really go crazy in Northern Europe. So my, we are having a Northern European themed Christmas party this Christmas season. Where at the time we're recording this, it's not yet. With your Santa Claus. With yeah, it's a, it's a there's going to be presents in shoes, baby. Because my wife grew up in Germany and loves that kind of Christmas market uh, glowing uh, lights affair. It's crazy, and you really do feel when you're there that same feeling of like. There's really something to this, and it's partly because the Germans and Dutch and Danish are still practicing a very pagan religion that they've dressed up as Christianity, but they're still tree worshipers, all of them. That's a very interesting thing about Santa, which is, uh, you know, we tend to think, for example, that the American Santa Claus and the British Father Christmas are essentially synonymous. It's like elevators and lifts. Or, you know, it's it's like bacon and streaky bacon or whatever. But actually, they have a totally different streaky origin. Streaky bacon. Oh, yeah, streaky bacon. Oh, okay. Bacon is something different in Britain, so they say streaky bacon to mean our kind of fatty bacon. That's not super relevant to the story of Father Christmas. No, go on. <laughs> but the, the origin of Father Christmas, as you're saying, is actually pretty pagan. Um, it, it comes down through memories of Odin, a, a white-bearded personification of the solstice. And ironically, it was it was kind of brought back into fashion by royalists after the English Civil War because the Puritans are trying to ban Christmas at this time. Sure, they're uh, it's ostentatious, it, yeah, it's excessive. Right. They hate all the electric consumerist stuff. They hate the tree lots. They hate all the traffic. I know the Kmart, the Black Friday, waiting in line for Santa at Macy's. Uh, they hate it all. But then three ghosts appear to them. No, three ghosts don't appear to them. So in order to push back against this idea that Christmas should be banned, the royalists introduce an, an, a personification of Christmas. And it's a white-bearded man. And he has nothing to do with bringing gifts is the interesting thing about Father Christmas. He's about the old-time Christmas traditions, which is like adult merrymaking, drinking. It comes down from when a feudal lord would let everybody have a feast around a big hearth for the one time in the year. Right. The solstice, the darkest night. Right before he claimed his prima nocta. <laughs> right. That's why kids had to go to bed early. It had, no, <laughs> had nothing to do with gifts and stockings. And so you've got this tradition, big white Odin-like bearded king fellow, you know, sire Christmas basically. And then that gets melded with the Dutch, who were the last people to enjoy the idea of a St. Nicholas Day. Right. So, and he was the patron saint of children. Right. He's a Turkish bishop of the very early one of the early church fathers. Well, no, that's funny because I do have a Turkish bishop over uh, every winter. <laughs> you do have a Turkish bishop? A tur Turkish where, where, bishop. Where do you find one? You just find over a, winters you here. You just find a copt somewhere? No, he's somebody I've known for a long time. As the actress said to the Turkish bishop. <laughs> Turkish bishop sounds like a Christmas treat. Like you go to England and they'd be like, let's slice up the Turkish bishop. <laughs> Turkish bishop sounds like a hot Carl. <laughs> Wait, I don't know what a hot Carl is. You don't know what a hot Carl is? 
do not Google hot Carl. Is this omnibus, uh, future, future is this omnibus, Christmas omnibus after dark now? Do, do, do not. I am trigger warning you, warning you all. Do not. Don't look up Turkish Bishop either in case it's something awful. Uh, poof. Let John have this. But the Dutch kept up this idea of, uh, of a gift giver for children, and they kind of turned him from a saintly bishop into, you know, more of a, a merry elf. Right. And the two traditions combined in America because, you know, what, this is where all things English and all things Dutch come together on right. this continent. We got all their Puritans, but then we Christmasized them with our weird Dutch folklore. We got the uh, mercantile instinct of the Dutch and... And the dour <laughs> Puritans <laughs> being forced to celebrate Christmas <laughs> against their will. You know, one of the things, I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the Omnibus, but I've spent several Christmases in the Netherlands, Christmas times. And uh, is this the racism, racism thing? Yeah. Have we talked about this before? The, the Zwarte Piet? I think we did. Yeah. The Santa. There's an awful racist caricature that accompanies Santa. Santa in the Netherlands does not have eight tiny reindeer or elves. What he has are little black slaves by the name of Black Pete's. There's, there's multiple uh, slaves? Yes. Who are his helpers. And they're kind of dressed like moors. And they follow him everywhere. So whenever you see Santa Claus, he's got this whole little cadre of white people in blackface Jeez. with Afro wigs. I see. To this day, when you see Santa Claus making an appearance in the Netherlands, he uh, well, and also there are little black peats in all of the windows of the shops. I mean, it's a major component of. You don't see Santa Claus really without them. And I think if you're a bad kid, uh, the little black peats are Moorish and they take the children to Spain. Um, Not Africa. They don't take them to Africa. They take them to Spain. That might be even better. You got beaches. It's nice there, but... You got tapas, you got sangria. It it also makes more sense because the Netherlands were a Spanish colony for a century or more. So the Dutch have a a real sense of Spain as a as a foreign as an oppressor, a foreign oppressor, and also like a place full of uh, Moorish elves. <laughs> well, no wonder they wanted their independence. <laughs> like if I was attacked by a nation of, of elves, I would want out too. So it seems like elves are just kind of a watered down version of you know Santa needs a non-union uh-huh. labor force. <laughs> well, but the and elves, if slaves are out, then it's kind of like how in the original printing of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the Oompa Loompas were explicitly kind of awful racial caricatures. Of what? Uh, they were just swarthy tropical oh. people. I think it might, it might specifically say Africa. Oh, it says Oompa Loompa right in the name. It's already a... It's like Unga Bunga. Unga Bunga. And then in later printings, to make it less racialized, I think they're changed. To, they come from Loompa land and they're not. Their their description is like fanciful. It's orange and blue or something. Just right, something and, the, and they're little people, so no one could possibly take offense. <laughs> right. Uh, but the elves, the elves, uh, you know, that's a Danish elves are throughout Denmark. Sure. True. In fact, they work in all the, the convenience stores. They make Lego. Yeah. I, oh, in, right. in Iceland, like I think most people, you know, if you do a survey, most Icelandic people will tell you they still believe in uh, elves and trolls just out there somewhere. All their pop stars are elves. On the rocks. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen Bjork. She's, so, she's got to be some kind of changeling. So our little, you know, tradition of Santa and elves and jolly sugar plum fairies and all, it's a goulash of all these no- Northern European traditions that all, what, coalesced in New York City in 1850, something like Basically, that? you got the Dutch influence, you've got the English influence. So authors like Washington Irving writes about, uh, you know, uh, introducing Santa Claus as, as an Americanized Santa Claus. And of course, Clement C. Moore writes... Uh, 
which was the night before Christmas. And that's where you get, I think he invents the eight tiny reindeer. Oh, really? Uh, he may invent the chimney angle. That's No, I think the chimney probably predates more. But And the description of Santa, you know, his eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry, whatever, his cheeks are like. I memorized this in sixth grade, and it right. seems like still know cherries. it. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on his chin was as white as the snow. Why do I still know I this? I know. That's beautiful, though. Think about how much of my, like, like, think of the other stuff I could actually have remembered if my sixth grade teacher hadn't made us memorize a visit from St. Nicholas. I really want you robotically reading the night before Christmas as uh, my ringtone on my phone. Twas the night, like really robotic? Like, <laughs> no, just how you were doing boop, boop, boop. it. Just in that way where like you're trying to remember something. Like horrified re realization we, that I still know it all. We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, <laughs> establish justice, you know, ensure domestic tranquility, on Vixen. provide for the common defense, promote the general <laughs> welfare. So, uh, so our idea of a, a, a jolly gift-giving elf forms at this period and not really in I, the... Well, I know. I'd like to I'd like just interject. I have always objected to Santa being described as an elf himself. And I know in a lot of these uh, 19th century poems, they call him a jolly old elf. Do you think he just did it for the rhyme and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself? I mean, or maybe it, the origin story of Santa is that he's like the biggest elf. He's like an elf with... <laughs> he's like with, the big cow. Yeah, gigantism. He outgrew all the other elves and now he just stands in the middle of them telling them what to do. But Santa doesn't have pointy ears. Santa doesn't want to be a dentist. See, you're thinking of this from like a D&D &D point of view where you rolled up Santa's race and he was an elf and now you're mad. Half elf. <laughs> <laughs> Santa's a lawful good elf who knows if you've been naughty or nice. He's a magic user paladin. I think Clement Seymour is speaking <coughs> metaphorically when he says right. he's an elf. He's I some see. kind of elfin, whimsical, mischievous, mythical guy. I get that. Because he's breaking into your house and doing kind of benign mischief. You know, he's putting candy in socks for he's some reason. eating your cookies. Sure. He's giving a carrot to his eight tiny reindeer. Stealing your children and taking them to Africa. <laughs> in some cases. There's a popular misconception in our time that our modern view of Santa with the large man, he, you know, Santa's thick, red fur-lined coat, the thick belt and boots that I'm already can't stop thinking about. Yeah. Uh, like this is all comes from 19... The, the bull whip, the motorcycle <laughs> boots. Right, right. Uh, yeah, we yeah. All, we're all picturing this, right? <laughs> the gimp mask with the zipper. <laughs> This all comes from 30s and 40s Coca-Cola advertising. Have you ever heard this idea that Coke created the modern Santa? Can that be true? Uh, well, I think it's widely believed to be true. And they did do a lot of popular kind of lushly painted ads showing right. Santa interacting with, with kids. You still see those. But in fact, uh, no. Uh, these illustrations by a guy named Haddon Sundblom who painted these for Coke for many years. Haddon Sunblom. He sounds Dutch. He does. He sounds super Dutch. When <laughs> uh, the sun blooms. They actually reflected what people already believed about Santa. Like there's a 1902 cover of Punch magazine mm -hmm. showing Santa, and it's by an Australian illustrator, but he looks just like he does today. Exactly the same fashion, exactly the same beard. He looks like he just walked off of a dollar store Christmas card. Does he have a long pipe? Uh, or a medium. I pipe. feel like the pipe is kind of out now altogether. Santa shouldn't smoke if he knows what's naughty and nice. Oh, I see what you're saying. But we do see the long pipe in 19th century Santas. If there is one American who's more influential than any other at creating our modern Santa, it's uh, the political cartoonist Thomas Nast. Yay! He arrives on the scene. Just in time for Christmas. <laughs> 
When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. Thomas Nast was a political cartoonist, maybe the great American political cartoonist of his time, but he would have probably would have called himself an artist or an illustrator. Before David Horsey, you mean. <laughs> yes, before Herblock <laughs> and Gary Trudeau. <laughs> he was the one who was drawing uh, elaborate engravings of the White House for four unchanged, <laughs> identical engravings of the White House on wood blocks. Back when Duke smoked. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, does Duke have a long pipe? He had a, yeah, he had a cigarette holder. He did. That's the longest pipe you can have nowadays. In 1862, the Bavarian-born immigrant Thomas Nast was hired by Harper's Weekly, which was then uh, called a Journal of Civilization, the one of the great American magazines of the era. Yep, a great magazine and remained one, remains one. Well, do you Har still read Harper's? Harper's is still around. I remember uh, liking the index where they would do, so it, it would say like 387,168, and then that would be like, what would it be? Species of dinosaurs discovered since January 1st. It was the original clickbait, except it was just on one page and you already owned the magazine. I, I actually would read it in the store, turn to the index and put it back on the shelf. Oh. You're an, you're an old newsstand employee. You hate oh, me. We hated you. But you could get away with this at, at University Bookstore. Yeah, they didn't care. Bookstores don't care if you look at the magazines. They like it. Maybe not the dirty ones. Harper's Weekly was a spinoff of Harper's because Harper's itself actually goes back to the 18, 1850, I yeah, think. Yeah, Makes it the second oldest magazine still being After the Atlantic. printed in America. The Atlantic is late 1850s. Oh, no kidding. Harper's is older than the Atlantic. Do you know what's, you know the only American magazine still being printed today that goes back to the 1840s? Let me think, let me think, let me think. It's, uh, it's such a funny answer, I don't think you will guess model it. Model Railroader. Jugs. <laughs> No, it's neither model. What if it was model railroader? Model railroads predate the actual railroads. The railroads were somebody's attempt to build large human-sized versions of the model toys that everyone loved on their tables in their basements. Well, so I'm dying to know. Popular mechanics? What was That's it? That's very close. Scientific American wow. was actually like a little eight-page pamphlet printed in the 1840s and continuously printed till today. That makes me glad. Isn't that nuts? Yeah. That people wanted a magazine called Scientific American in the 1840s. Good for us. I mean, that was the era where science was really ascendant. Science was, you know, starting to do stuff. It was, starting to make real things, like like big-scale model railroads. <laughs> like, finally, a train you could fit in <laughs> instead of just zooming in circles around a little table. Uh, Harper's Weekly uh, called itself a journal of civilization. It was a news magazine because this was mass media back right. then. You would have to wait for the postman to bring you your Harper's and then you would find out what was going on in, in Washington or in New York. And it was, a, because it was a nationwide magazine, it had to be fairly moderate. It could not tick off the South. 
So at a time when many other New England publications were strongly abolitionist, it was, you know, it, it, it could see both sides. It, it, taught, a, it taught the controversy of owning human beings. It was mildly abolitionist. People, as a result, a lot of, uh, a lot of you know, Republican right thinkers called it Harper's Weekly oh, with an A. Ouch. Hilarious. Stinging. <laughs> and photography existed then, but it was not yet, there was no way to reproduce it in, uh, in newspaper form. There was no process that would, to, you know, to turn a photograph into a, a thing you could cheaply print and reproduce. So you had to do that Wall Street Journal pixelated uh, hash mark sort the, of uh, uh, stipple portraits. Yeah, the the you know, engrave it into a block rather than what are they called? We, stipple stipple portraits. Isn't there like a one word name? Have we talked about these on the show? It's, it's Dutch stipple portrait. The stipple portrait. I think they call them head cuts. Head cuts, but without a D. Uh, sorry, it has a D, of course. <laughs> Hey, it's head cuts. Uh, it's a head cut without the A because oh. it's like head, like a newspaper. Uh, oh, right. Head. Header. Goes, I guess it goes by the header of the, by the headline. Yeah. And so some, an illustrator would draw something and then someone would literally have to copy it by carving it into a block of wood. Which is another one of those like sign painters. What was once a professional trade that is now lost to the ages. No one can imagine that this was a thing that. At one point, you were a respected member of the journalistic community, and your job was to carve pictures into woodblock. Just like the guy who sits outside executives' doors and paints new names on. Right. Or scrapes them off when something awful happens. A hilarious leitmotif in movies from the 1940s and 50s when somebody gets fired. That's how, that's how it's indicated. Their name is being scraped off the door. A chisel. So, uh, but Nast, like all the illustrators of the air, like, because there's no photography, he actually has to go to Civil War battlefields and, and do elaborate carvings of the backgrounds and the troop movements and the gory results. So this is the, this is the equivalent of CNN, you know, he's, he's Anderson Cooper, Christian Amanpour bringing the, the suffering in, except here it's not Bosnia, it's Pennsylvania or Maryland. Well, I'm sure everybody's people, living room. people really studied those illustrations. It was their only contact with that's all you happening. could see. So you would sit and just pour over them. Right. And uh, he was a very skilled illustrator. Um, he got so good that he could actually uh, skip the engraving step. He would take a, he would draw his thing and then he, on the back of a woodblock in reverse huh. so that it could easily be, <laughs> so they could easily be carved out. So a very talented illustrator and uh, by all accounts, kind of a, a churlish, awful person, oh. but, a, but a very strict kind of rock ribbed uh, abolitionist Republican type who was a real cheerleader for Lincoln and the Union during the Civil War. So we should stipulate that Republicanism at the time was the radical progressive party. Right. The Republicans were the progressives and the Democrats were the uh, Southern sort of um, revisionist, or I guess this pre revisionism. Uh, they're, they're just visionists. They're, <laughs> they were the Southern uh, entrenched sort of white supremacists. So a lot of um, Nast's illustrations were of the Civil War. And in 1862, he did a cartoon called uh, A Christmas Morning Furlough, which shows Santa showing up to a Union camp and giving gifts to all the soldiers. And uh, Santa's in a sleigh. Uh, he, you know, it's drawn from Clement C. Moore's The Night Before, the night before Christmas. Although but, sleighs were not uncommon then. 
it wouldn't have everyone been everyone like, had a sleigh. It's not a novelty. It wouldn't have been it's like, just like Santa showing up in yeah, a Prius. Yeah. <laughs> Santa rolled up in a Camaro. No one had ever seen one before. It's the most common winter transportation. So of course he has it. Right. It's uh, it's not supposed to be interesting at all. He was coming around the mountain when he came. <laughs> was he on his way to grandma's house? <laughs> he is. Uh, he's dressed in stars and stripes, though. He's a patriotic figure. Oh, so he's kind then. of an Uncle Sammy Santa. Yeah, he's giving the, the soldiers gifts because he's part he's part of the war effort. Right. He's a propaganda figure. And as Nast went on to continue to use Santa as kind of a propaganda tool for the North, Lincoln actually said that Santa Claus was the best recruiting sergeant the North ever had. Wow. Santa turned into a, uh, a voice of the Union. So Santa was a familiar enough figure that nobody had to have it explained to them who this guy in pajamas was giving toys to the soldiers, but also not so universal that he couldn't be sort of converted to a partisan. Yeah, in the North, at least. In the South, it was quite different. So as you can imagine, turning Santa into a propaganda figure did not go over big in the South. Um, There's a Richmond newspaper during the war that actually complains about Santa, calling him a Dutch toymonger with, quote, no more to do with Christmas merrymaking than a Hottentot. Wow. So, so he's a symbol of Yankee uh, uh, incursion. Oh, and with that Hottentot burn. I know. That's, that gets to the heart of it, doesn't that's like, it? That's like Black Pete or, or whatever his name is. So yeah, the worst thing they could think of in the South, an African, I guess. Isn't that what Hottentots are? Uh, yeah, they're from like South Africa. But in the North, yeah. What, what, he, what did they say about the... Starbucks cups? Were they mad about that too? <laughs> like in the Richmond Examiner? <laughs> yeah. Are they like... You mean because it doesn't have Jesus on it anymore? These Starbucks cups took the Lord away. A snowflake has nothing to do with the life of our Savior. (laughs) So Thomas Ness does kind of popularize the image of Santa. Um, He gives him, by the 1880s, you know, he's doing yearly Christmas illustrations. There's one called Merry Old Santa, which really is almost indistinguishable from our modern Santa. He's got the big belly. He's holding a bunch of toys under his arm. He's got the red and white fur suit. I mean, not a fur suit, but a fur suit. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Futurelings, Ken felt the need to distinguish because a fur suit is our early way of describing what became your 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 most common skin. sexual practice, right? Yeah. Which is uh, to dress as a a mascot or sexy wolf. So this is not Santa dressed in a reindeer fursuit. No. No. He's just Although, in a fur-lined red suit. With his motorcycle boots. Do you think Mrs. Am Claus right? ever wants him to put on uh, the old Rudolph suit? Uh, he, that's, o- a, that's a little Ed Gein. <laughs> <laughs> the only difference in, uh, in Nast's 1880s work, Santa does not have kind of the, the stocking cap of today. He's just wearing like a, a big Top fur hat. hat. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's wearing a Homburg no, he's wearing like a, a winter fur hat, which oh, is sure. what, which is what uh, somebody would wear you're driving around in a sleigh in, in 19th century America. Sure. I like that Santa. He's got a sprig of holly on it. So it's, it's Christmassy. Do you have the same sort of romantic sense of. That, like romantic feelings towards Santa? Do you have the, no, yes, yes, you're the one who established that. No, I mean the romantic feelings toward a Northeast Christmas of the 19th century. It's, it was so Yeah, Courier and Ives, yeah. right? The idea that Santa, those kind of earlier Santas with big fur hats that were in real sleighs and riding through towns, I've always felt growing up in the West that we were some, and remain somewhat deprived of those sugar maple Christmases. Sure. I mean, I love the idea of a 
20th century American downtown decorated for Christmas. But I think what I really want is kind of a more of a Bedford Falls or even a, you know, 1890s bandstand. Yeah. Carolers. Yeah. You you want a small town, I think. Yeah. Well, all, all covered in snow. You want to make America great again. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> the cities, <laughs> the, the urban elites are enemies, as you know, John. But uh, Nast's great gift to the Christmas, to the Santa legend, actually, is something that appears to be 100% original to him, which is the idea that Santa lives at the North Pole. Really? Yes. Prior to this, Santa didn't have an address or a, or a zip code. He would come with gifts, but it's it's anybody's guess where he goes after that. Heaven, I guess? He sounds more and more like some of the leather daddies I know. <laughs> Leaves in the morning. No permanent address. (laughs) And it's not clear. Like, this is after Nas' death. His son is boasting about this, that, like, this is dad's great gift, that Santa comes from the North Pole now. It's not quite clear why, but, you know, it's it's easy to guess. Makes sense. If Santa has to visit the whole Northern Hemisphere, it makes sense that his base of operations would be somewhere equidistant from, you know, America and Europe. Nas' son also noted that uh, the North Pole is someplace where kids couldn't spy on him, so... Parents have plausible deniability. Why don't we see Santa? Oh, he's at the North Pole. It's like having a girlfriend from Canada. Well, and also this was the era of Robert Peary exploring the North Pole. He didn't, the North Pole was not visited until 1909. So maybe the North Pole was in people's minds as a terra incognita. Yeah, it's exactly. It's as far, it's a mystery place. It's as far as you can get. It's just like uh, medieval maps pushing the Garden of Eden further and further away as, as more stuff gets explored. It's got to be somewhere. St. Louis. The, where's El Dorado? It's got to keep pushing it down further into the jungle. Right. And of course, as a North Pole, he's not He's not from anywhere. That, you know, oh, you, don't he, have, he, you don't have to deal with a Santa who's Dutch or, or uh, from Connecticut. And of course, he's got, you know, he's got a reindeer and sleigh in the poem, so he must live somewhere cold. But if you think about uh, Santa's, you know, 19th century Santa's origin as a government military recruiting tool who's against the South, what could be less south than the North Pole? Uh-huh. Like he embodies northness during the Civil War. So it's it's a way to um, own the libs, own the Confederates, I guess. Owned, pawned. By putting Santa pooned. as far away from the south as possible. It would be like, if we were at war with Canada, it would be like putting him in Mexico, basically. Right. The southerners were like, no, Santa is from Honduras. <laughs> He's from Australia, actually. <laughs> so that's Nast's great gift to the Santa legend. Without him, we would still have a homeless Santa or Santa who's on Mars or conquering the Martians, I guess. Right. But that's not Nast's only legacy. It's not what Nast is even primarily known for. If you look up Nast in a desk reference, it will not say Santa popularized. Invented the North Pole for Santa. Um, although, you know, if you t- think about which of his innovations affected the most people, it might be that. I don't know. Hmm. But we think of Santa... Pretty much every time we talk about politics in America, he gave us the donkey of the Democratic Party and the elephant of the Republican Party. Invented them or popularized them? Well... My sense was that those had kind of been mm, toyed with. He invented the Republican elephant. There's an argument that there's an antecedent for the Democratic donkey. Andrew Jackson's detractors called him a jackass mm-hmm. and he decided to embrace it. He decided he would reclaim, I, and I assume because jackass sounds like Jackson, he was asking for it. Right. I'm sure that happened to him the on the playground as Jack a kid. right there in it. And he decided he would reclaim it and he would say, yeah, you know, we're the party of the jackasses. We're stubborn. We're reliable. We do the hard work. So he tried to push um, the jackass as a symbol of the Democratic Party, but that had almost been forgotten by 1870. 
when Thomas Nast, now working for a more reliably Republican editorial administration at Harper's, you know, really would dig into national politics. And in that year, he printed a cartoon called A Live Jackass Kicking a Dead Lion. And this is a uh, a political cartoon where a donkey labeled copperheads, you know, uh-huh. uh, you know, Northern Democrats, um, is kicking a lion labeled Stanton, I think Lin- Lincoln's late press secretary. And the idea is that the, the, you know, Lincoln's still lionized in America, but the modern Democrats are disgracing his, his memory and his legacy with their um, anti-reconstructionist rhetoric. Don't you love a time when a political cartoon required of its, of its uh, viewers a pretty good knowledge of what contemporary politics were all about? I mean, you, you couldn't just look at that and it wasn't a Dilbert cartoon, right? It, it, that would be an easy reference to them. Like Copperheads and Stanton would be, you know, for us, it would be like the Tea Party or Bernie Sanders or Sarah Huckabee Sanders, you know, uh, like those are names that everyone would know. If you saw the New York Times kicking Sarah Huckabee Sanders today, you wouldn't be like, well, I better Google this. Well, I would. Who are these people? <laughs> What's the New York Times? It's fake news. You don't have to worry about it. Uh, and because of that, that brought back the idea that the Democratic Party was a donkey. They never officially ratified this in any way. Uh, you know, it, it was never voted on at a convention. It was never the plank of a platform because it's maybe not that flattering. If they were going to pick, would they pick the donkey? No, but I don't know if you would pick an elephant either. I, in fact, it seems strange to me that the parties even have animal representations. Like if you go to Europe, None of the political parties are represented by... The Tories are a kookaburra and labor is a washing bear. I mean, what does... what? Do, it's like the, martial arts schools in, in old Jackie Chan movies. It's like, I will do snake fist attack. And the other guy's like, I will do eagle claw attack. Do, do the Tories use John Bull as their symbol? I don't think so. John Bull is the British Uncle Sam. He's like a guy in a, in a yeah. waistcoat that looks like the Union Jack or Churchill, something. Churchill, like a like a shabby Churchill. <laughs> shabby Churchill. That's, that's their brand, actually. Uh-huh. Who are you going to vote for? <laughs> shabby Churchill or these angry Brexiteer, anti-Brexiteers? The elephant cartoon comes from a couple years later, 1874, and it's even more obscure. Do you, do you like these old-timey political cartoons where they're very complex and there's 11 things and everything has a label? Like there's a monkey in a tree that says like... Uh, you know, Maine independence or whatever, or New New Hampshireites or something. I like the earlier ones where they all have speaking balloons, <laughs> yeah. but you can't read like the, it, but it's all done in handwriting. So they, you're like, they hadn't know. invented the thing where you have to draw the words first and then the balloon around it. So all the stuff fits very illy in the, uh, in the balloons. Like they drew the balloon first and then tried to squeeze the words in and it didn't quite work. Uh, in this, this 1874 cartoon is called The Third Term Panic. And then y- y- to understand it, you have to have a full sentence. An ass, having put on the lion's skin, roamed about in the forest and amused himself by frightening all the foolish animals he met with in his wanderings. And sure enough, there's a donkey in a lion's skin who's scaring an ostrich who's put his head in the ground and a giraffe wearing a suit running away, an owl. And in the foreground... There's a big elephant called the Republican vote. Uh-huh. And he's stampeding across a bridge that says inflation, reform, repudiations. So you've got the elephant of whatever. The idea is that um, Ulysses S. Grant might have run for a third term. And the 
Republicans were, sorry, the Democrats were fear-mongering that Grant could become a dictator if he broke with Washington's precedent and ran for a third term. So you've got a, a potential American dictator. And that was or, their- or the, or the specter of that. That was their lion skin? That uh, I, the, the I, lion represented Grant's third term? I guess. See, you were, you were like, oh, these would be commonplace knowledge- uh, <laughs> To the people of the time. Clearly at the time, every child would look at a lion and be like, oh, like President Grant's third term. Yeah, like the specter of Grant's third term. (laughs) That we all were worried about. But Nast was a supporter of Grant. Yes. Yeah, he was. He he was very influential. I mean, the big thing about Nast is not necessarily that he had some kind of game-changing talent. It was that he had this amazing platform. People saw his work once a week all over the country at a time when nobody had a national platform. So he was a real... Uh, thought, thought leader. He was an uh-huh. influencer uh-huh. <laughs> in a time before there was any kind of Will Rogers on the radio. I wonder what his clout score was. I bet he had an amazing clout. He was the only person in America whose clout score was above one. <laughs> like the president was one and Thomas Nast was like two. Center clout. <laughs> and so as a res- so the elephant was just chosen, I assume, because he wanted a big, scared, stampeding thing. Right. Um, a big, powerful entity that nevertheless can get spooked. Oh, so prior to that, the elephant was not, this was the first, like, yes, this iteration. S- of- for some reason, this goofy cartoon, which also has owls and ostriches and maybe a unicorn, it's not clear, uh, cements in the public's mind the idea that the Republican Party is like an elephant. Oh, I wish the ostrich and the and the unicorn yeah. had labels too, so we would be like, oh. I feel like there should be a law in America that every new third party should have to choose an animal from this panel. From that panel. Yeah, I guess we're the, there's nothing left, guys. <laughs> we're I the giraffe in a suit. We're that gazelle in the back that you can't even see. <laughs> and the Republican Party, unlike the Democrats, have actually officially made the elephant their mascot. I assume because oh. it's a little more flattering. It's a, at least a powerful animal without any kind of uh, implication of stupidity. In fact, the elephant is... Very smart. A smart animal. It remembers. Right. Not it, like they a, can paint. Not like the yeah, they can they can paint. That's all they do. They just sit around and paint with their trunks. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. You mentioned that uh, Nast was a big supporter of Ulysses S. Grant. And in fact, all the Republican presidents of that era, you know, namely Ulysses S. Grant and his successor, Rutherford B. Hayes, credited Nast with winning them the Oval Office. They thought that they would not have been elected if not for his support of their party and platform. And that's certainly defensible in the case of Hayes, who won that crazy contested election over Samuel Tilden. But uh, interestingly, even though he essentially king-made two consecutive U.S. presidents, Thomas Nast's most famous legacy today might have nothing to do with national politics. It's actually a municipal issue. It's what he did for New York City. And this is, this is where I know about the man. 
this is right down the plate of your NAST knowledge. Yeah, his uh, taking on Boss Tweed and Tammany Hall in New York City. Oh, we love this story around the campfire. Well, this is a... I don't know if you can even imagine a crazy time when a corrupt Democratic Party machine would control major American cities. Go on. This just seems like a fable to us now. Say what now? <laughs> you've run for you've run for office in in large cities with powerful Democratic votes. Now I'm not going to say that the Seattle or Washington Democratic Party is a corrupt machine, and I know this for a fact because my father worked for Kennedy. During and the, you know what a corrupt city machine looks like. And he did. Uh, he went, he was uh, Kennedy's advance man on the big campaign in 1960. And he went to Chicago and was laying out what was going to happen when Kennedy arrived. And he was so taken with the Chicago party machine. And in his time spent there, really got in you know, in those smoke-filled rooms with the Chicago Democrats. And his takeaway from it was he was going to come back to Washington State and turn the Washington Party, which he was really involved with, you know, he was a comer in the Washington Democrats. He was going to turn it into a, a Chicago-style machine. Wait, your dad saw Daly's Chicago and was like, this, this, this. is what America needs. This is Washington's <laughs> com communitarian, like, like uh, you know, mealy-mouthed style of, of Democratic our, our, politics. Our feel-good politics must go. He was like, we need to, you know, we need to circle the wagons. And so my dad and Can his, you defend this? Well, what happened, my dad and his friend Bernie Heavey made a run at the Democratic Party leadership here saying, this is how we're going to, this is how this we're going to structure gonna be, Democrats. See? And it didn't, they lost. They lost the, you know, it came to a, a head and, and they weren't able to get enough support. Because we're in the West. We've got this independent Scandinavian streak. That's right. We and don't want we don't want these shysters telling us what to do. And this was the dying era of that kind of smoke-filled room. Except for Chicago, where it persists today. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it but he got no traction here. And it actually spelled kind of it was a real defeat. And he sort of lost his political momentum here. Did your dad feel like maybe he could have been the candidate? Like he, he could have run Seattle? It wasn't that he thought he was. He was, that, I mean, everybody in Washington at the time thought he was. My dad was elected to the legislature here while he was still in law school. So he was the go golden-haired child. and So the, he wouldn't have been pulling the strings. He would have actually been this was the, in the driver's seat. Yeah, this was the group that was going to send him to the U.S. Senate. Once they got their ducks in a row and stopped you know, stopped wandering around in the rain with their waxed cotton hats. But, you know, he couldn't get a quorum. And so he moved to Alaska. <laughs> Where he moved to Alaska and he never came, he never really rejoined the Washington State Democrats. He, he started the Alaska Democrats. He's kind of like a Pacific Northwest uh, boss tweed then, who also ended up getting exiled. Although I don't think my dad was corrupt as much as he believed in uh, like a central. It was just a, it, he just liked the efficiency of it. Yeah, he's he's more of a Stalinist uh, a daily type. He felt he, he doesn't felt, want to line his pockets. He felt like the Democrats should determine from the top down who the candidates were and what their platforms were, rather than from the bottom up. Old school Democrats, and in Washington State now, it's certainly true that the party is. There's kind of one political party in Washington state, and it's the Democratic Party. That idea is kind of out of fashion elsewhere, right? You just kind of get these, you know, rising stars coming out of nowhere, school teachers, or they're coming out of the internet, or they're coming out of labor, and they they just say, 
hey, I could run. That's always the American fantasy. The bottom-up fantasy. But isn't it kind of true, this cycle? Uh, Well, uh, all of the people that are supposedly like just regular, you know, Joe America just coming out and running for office. No, they're all politically connected and politically active. They're not unknown. Well, sure. They're not, they're not somebody sitting at home reading the paper thinking, I could do better than this. That's the last people you want governing, actually. Those yeah. are the same people in our gallery saying, my kid could do this. It's just that they come from activist backgrounds rather than right. party, uh, like stalwart backgrounds, but they're super well-known within the activist world. They're not, it's, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's easy not, to rally the right base for them. Yeah. Patty Murray has this story about like, she was just some mom in tennis shoes. She's a mom. I don't know if you've heard this, John, but she was a mom. <laughs> and get this, Wait she wore tennis shoes. <laughs> it's crazy. Like, I don't know what you're picturing a mom wearing on her feet, but is it tennis shoes? No. She was a mom in tennis shoes and then became one of the most powerful U.S. senators. How did it happen? I guess it was the right brand of shoes. Mm, it's got to be the shoes. It's like those Michael Jordan. It's got to be the shoes. <laughs> no, it was, uh, it was Washington State Democratic politics is what it was. Uh, boss tweet. So, sorry, that was a little bit of a digression. No, this is, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. I want first person stories from the Smokefield rooms I will never be in. Yeah. Uh, boss tweed was the man who ran the democratic party machine in gilded age, New York, a man, a plan, a gilded age, a bag of money. Everybody was co- literally covered in gold back then. Like the, like the woman in Goldfinger. Oh, it was, was a gilded age. Cause there was so much, except for the big copper guy. Out, out wandering the West somewhere. Everybody else was covered in a thin layer of 24 karat gold. The copperhead and the, and the giraffe in tennis shoes. <laughs> Patty Murray was a giraffe in a suit. She was just a regular <laughs> giraffe and she wore a suit. Uh, the New York party machine was like super corrupt at this time. Tweed, the source of Tweed's power was not his elected office, although he was uh, briefly in the New York state Senate? He was in actually like the U.S. House of Representatives for a while and then got elected to the state Senate. And then, you know, he he had a variety of like New York state jobs. But that was not the source of his power. He realized very early on that what you needed in New York City was to be placed on all these boards that actually made the decisions of who was going to get the contract Mm -hmm. to do City Hall or how much was going to get spent on this or that. So patronage was how that that city was run, and that was a my father was in charge of patronage for the Washington State Democrats. Wait, patronage was a thing that got talked about at meetings. It wasn't just a concept from AP U.S. History exams. No patronage. There was actually, I mean, my dad's had the office of like director of patronage for the governor of Washington at a certain point, which was just like, did you do a favor for the governor? Then you get the contract. It was a, and this was all above board. Yeah, the 1950s. It was just how things were done. Uh, Tweed took this to a great extreme. Once he's on the county board of supervisors and he's appointed all his buddies everywhere else, you know, then they can really just turn the faucets and the money just starts to flow out. Tammany Hall, which, you know, we probably think of Tammany Hall as a building full of smoke-filled rooms where the Democratic power brokers met with their cronies. But in fact, uh, Tammany Hall met in many different places. It was a... Tammany Hall was more of a society a of state friends. of mind. Yeah. I mean, it actually, it actually does seem more like a fraternal lodge because Tweed is able to get himself elected as the Grand Sockham, like not Rockham Sockham, but like uh, Native American appropriation. Sockham? Sockham. Yeah. Like some kind of a, a, a chief or a, or a wise man uh, who runs the show. And uh, the scope of his graft and cronyism is just unprecedented. Like he's not tasteful about it at all. He will literally give people 
$100,000 contracts for some city hall work that doesn't even exist. You know, they right. showed up for two hours and collected what would be literally be a million dollars today. To spackle some uh, electrical outlet. Exactly. Yeah. Probably not an electrical outlet in 1870. Uh, a candle outlet. It was a steam-powered outlet. Ste- steam outlet. Steam oops. would just come pouring out of it, and you would plug in your steampunk dishwasher or, or, uh, or vacuum cleaner. Handsome brass gauge. <laughs> it was those tubes. It was those uh, big cylindrical tubes that shot messages around. Yeah, pneumatic tubes, which is going to be another uh, entry in the omnibus. Why haven't we done pneumatic tubes well, yet? It's on my list. Are we scared off by the silent P? Have we never done an episode with a silent letter? Oh, because letter? we don't like to... Uh, You'd have a very difficult time figuring out what you're... Yeah, are we putting that one under N or P? I think it's going to be under P. It's a silent P. Silent P. So word starts to get out about Boss Tweed's corruption and graft and cronyism. Because he was putting his own people in an elected office, uh, and they were skimming, not just like giving this sort of graft to patrons, but they were just out and out skimming millions of dollars from the New York City and state budget. Because they had a friend... Like the governor of of New York was a Tammany Hall guy. And so every time there would be any attempt to reform or investigate, they would just populate the investigative board with Tammany Hall operatives. And so, you know, they'd be like, we're going to audit the city's books and nine guys that were, you know, handpicked by. Here's a $3 million contract to audit the city's books. Tell us if there's any uh, weird payments. (laughs) And they would come back and just be like, everything's on the up and up. I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't an outside, there wasn't an attorney general or something that was outside of this Tammany Hall machine. Estimates of the total amount of money embezzled or appropriated rise to the, today to the hundreds of millions. And I think that's in 1876 dollars. Wow. Which is just crazy. So as you say, with no oversight, it falls to the fifth column, the press, to try to rile people up about this just naked uh, corruption that's going on. And interestingly, most of the work is not done by Harper's. Um, it's actually the New York Times that does a series of hard-hitting looks into exactly how much power Tammany Hall is up to and how uh, has and how they've abused it. This was the Times really earning their bones. Yes. All the news that's fit to print. Harper's, however, is where Thomas Nast really jumps on this because, you know, Boo, Democrats. Right. And he really riles people up about Tweed in particular. Um, and maybe people who are never going to read, you know, three columns of 14, 14 inches of tiny type in the New York Times will look at a picture of Thomas Nast where he's, you know, drawn as a vulture or he's drawn as like a, a Napoleon type conqueror or he's like a, a corpulent Super titan portly with yeah. a with a money bag for a head that's the one we usually see today because that's kind of stuck with us as an as an awful an awful american banker stereotype this you know big fat guy in a three-piece suit like the kingpin but he's got a scrooge mcduck bag of money on his head for a head um sometimes uh tweed was a giant thumb crushing manhattan like mm-hmm. like from space like a kaiju or something and this was what really started to change public opinion because Tweed knew that the, uh, you know, his base was largely immigrants of one kind or another, largely Irish, and uh, a cartoon, a fun engraving in a popular weekly would do more damage. Than, Make him a figure of ridicule. Yeah. And that's kind of what uh, political cartoonists do. I was reading an interview with David Lowe, who is a New Zealand-born British cartoonist who created um, Colonel Blimp. Uh, Uh during World War II as kind of a caricature of a stuffy old school British soldier. And David Lowe was once saying, you know, he did a famous cartoon once where Hitler and Stalin are meeting in the middle of Poland, which they've just decimated. 
And he went to great lengths not to show off the mud and the blood and the carnage, but really to make both of them just look like asses. You know, they're saying terrible things to each other. And Lowe's idea was always that the genius of political cartooning is that a tyrant will never be threatened by showing his power and all the evil he's done because he's proud of that. What you really want to do is just make him look like a huge ass. And I think we see that in the Trump era as well, that a lot of people have realized that tweaking him on Twitter about the size of his inauguration crowds is much better than saying, your immigration policy is cruel, sir. Right. Because he'll just be like, yeah, yeah, it is. You know, like that's, he agrees with the first part. So these cartoons where tweet is kind of made into a figure of fun really do a lot of harm. Well, because he's also under investigation. He's also under tremendous amount of pressure from, yeah. from all sides. The times and the investigations are paying off. Yeah, the, thing, the, the things collapsing around him and then his power base, which is the kind of, well, this is the setting of the movie Gangs of New York. So if you've ever seen that film, that kind of five points, hard scrabble downtown New York culture was his, these were the people that backed him up, right? And as that fell apart, as their support fell apart, he had nowhere to run and he was arrested. Yeah he, yeah, he knew that the cartoons were worse than the news. He he famously said, stop those damned pictures. He went to any lengths. He offered Nast, um, in one account, half a million dollars to go study art in Europe. You know, you, <laughs> hey, you know can you imagine this this guy, this Philistine being like, hey, you like art, yeah. right? Hey, they don't they have museums in Europe? Yeah. And Nast does not take the bribe. You know, Tweed has finally found someone unbribable. Tweed should have just hired Daniel Day-Lewis to go... Uh, to go whack him? Go whack him. <laughs> what we need is Bill the Butcher, who really existed, maybe? So why not? Yeah, I think. I think. Um, as you say, uh, Tweed is eventually sent to prison, but he's allowed home visits and escapes. He escapes to Spain. Huh. Was he taken by some, some Schwarze Pietz? <laughs> he was taken to Spain where Moorish elves crawl out of the Pyrenees and drag him down screaming. No, actually, but it's not that different. Um, he's in Spain and Nast's cartoons are so successful that some Spanish authorities see a Thomas Nast cartoon where Tweed is pictured hauling street kids around by the collar. And this is one where he's drawn Tweed to look like Tweed. So the Spanish authorities actually recognize Tweed from this cartoon, and they're like, hey, we have this dastardly child kidnapper. Because uh, they think he's the guy who drags kids around. It's, right. you know, and it's just, uh, they, don't, they don't know, apparently, the, uh, the conventions of political cartooning, oh, where, the, where the, the kids are probably labeled, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, good government <laughs> and uh, American ideals or something. They can't read the they can't read the caption because it's not in Spanish. So they're like, we hey we we ha they arrest him and they tell America, hey, we have your child kidnapper, and uh, he is I think sent home and dies in prison. I believe. Yeah, died in prison. That was Nast's great. That was his big kill, I guess. You right. know, Tweed's head on the wall. His later life was not so happy either, as as photochemical processes made his illustrations less valuable, and the Harper's editorial staff was no longer that into him. He left and founded his own magazine called Nasts, which was not much of a success. So he ends up in dire straits and he actually relies on political patronage. Teddy Roosevelt appoints him to a, a diplomatic post in Ecuador. Unfortunately, Ecuador is ravaged by yellow fever at the time. And Nast quickly takes ill and dies in Ecuador. That's, um, that, that's quite a political patronage. That's, there's your twist. What a, what a plum job. If only he had looked at his old <laughs> cartoons and been like, wait a second. I shouldn't take this job in Ecuador. I'm no diplomat. Well, you know, Nast came along at a time when uh, 
you know, this was the era of great immigration to the United States. And he was obviously famously like a, a Republican of his time, anti-slavery, and also was very pro-Chinese immigrant, like famous for supporting oh, the Chinese. So, you know, African-Americans and Chinese were always portrayed as having a lot of dignity and their white oppressors were really uh, you know, scorned in NASA's cartoons. But he had a blind spot which was he hated the Irish. He hated Catholics, which he, is weird because his background might be Catholic. It was. He was a Bavarian Catholic, but he converted to Protestantism in America and then became, you know, and this happens a lot, right? You hate the thing that's closest to you. Hated Catholics, hated the Irish. It reminds him of his peasant upbringing, I guess. And so... And he even I think he's the one who influences Hayes to put a, an anti-Catholic plank, uh, Hayes and James Wayne to put an anti-Catholic plank in the Republican Party platform. Right, which is crazy to us now, but I mean, my my mom talks about Ohio in the 1940s, and she said, you know, we we were the most prejudiced against Italians and, and Irish. Papists. There were no, yeah, there were no Catholics in our town, as far as we knew. And I was like, <laughs> wow, okay. I didn't realize that was still a thing in the 40s. And she was like, oh, absolutely. So that one little problem of Nast's legacy is that a lot of his work is, well, pretty racist, but against people that we don't think of as being victims of racism now. That age as well, because yeah, they're not victims now. We, we obviously solved that one. Right. So these are harmless to us now. Whereas you look at some of his Civil War era work where, uh, you know, he has a very famous panel of um, depicting, in 1864, depicting a possible reconciliation between the North and the South, which in his panel is clearly a terrible surrender to the South. They're walking all over the American flag and a fairly respectfully drawn um, free blacks are being repressed back into slavery. And uh, it's all just a terrible, shameful scene. And it helped turn public opinion against the idea of making of peace a weak with reconstruction. The South, right. Yeah. But yeah, because the racial portrayals there are you know very sensitive because that was his pet issue, those have aged a lot better. But when he fought Boss Tweed, a lot of those cartoons pictured like grotesque, drunk Irishmen who were thugs and like vi violent, like drunk, violent Irish people, which, he, as we know, has no foundation in. It's just, it's reality. the opposite of what you actually see. Yeah. I mean, Nass probably didn't even care so much about corruption. He just like. Hated Irish. It was, yeah, taking down Tweed was just a side effect. <laughs> he just wanted to stick it to the Irish. You know, it's like uh, kicking out Boss Tweed to own the libs. And that concludes Thomas Nast, entry 825. Dot JB1534, certificate number 33423 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era and that you're not just getting your news from etchings, uh, woodblock etchings, which. That'll, that'll probably come back after the great catastrophe. Well, there won't be any wood. You know, in Blade Runner, real wood is, is very difficult to come by. Just like, do they have to make synthetic one, like the snake scales? Yeah, yeah, it's all the wood is fake. So what will our future political cartoons be etched in? Doonesbury's going to be like in a in a, an old uh, Costco sheet cake? Let's see, what will it, what will things be etched in? I guess, I don't know, volcanic rock? There's always a plenitude of volcanic rock. There's going to be, what, what is going to be in the wreckage of society? It'll just be cardboard. It'll just be etched in old Amazon boxes. Uh, cardboard's going to be the first thing to to deteriorate. We may even be talking to the, the living dregs of all the Amazon cardboard boxes that formed the, that kind that of... became sentient? Yeah, that kind <laughs> of globular, wet cardboard glue. 
Well, good. Yeah. Hello, friends. They didn't protect any of my like books or DVDs in life, so why should they have anything better now? Ooh, hard disks on the cardboard boxes. I'm against Amazon's packaging right now. They don't sponsor the omnibus, right? Not yet. Perfect. And, Although, who and, knows? And now they never will. <laughs> <laughs> who knows now that iHeartMedia is at the helm? This is a relatable Christmas story, I think, to, to remind people that Amazon doesn't ship well. I think it's a big part of the holiday season. Don't us. just buy all your gifts online. Get up, get out of your, your futurelings uh, hovels or off of the giant leaves. Go to your trading you post. That's right. Go down to the group town. Go, which, to, go down to old uh, Hottentot Town. At which various handmade beads and uh, cups, as well as, you know, chipped saucers from our age. and uh, That's right. The lunchbox thermoses and... Uh, All the great uh, antiques that you dig up out of the ground. Fun- Funko Pop figurines <laughs> that are going like a, a Hermione now goes for, for 10,000 bags of wheat. Well, can, can you imagine what a thermos would be worth to a post-industrial... It's true uh, that the, the thermos would be more useful than the Hermione Funko Pop. Sure, a thermos. I mean, you could live in a thermos if you were the, if you were a, a sentient hermit crab. But you're worshiping the Hermione Funko Pop. She's like right. a goddess to you. If you're That's a hermit crab, is. she's the same size as you. She's like your uh, sure. She's your beautiful statue of Galatia that you hope will come to life. She's the stainless steel Jesus over your Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> Anyway, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Omnibus Project, but you can get some top-shelf award-winning content on Twitter at Ken Jennings, uh, Pulitzer Prize-worthy content. And, yeah, uh, where's my Pulitzer? Where's your Webby? <laughs> uh, and <laughs> I'm, I'm at John Roderick in the same locale. Uh, I have an Instagram account under that name. It's a fun time. Not too many selfies there, although you can send me selfies. My DMs are open. Slide your selfies into John's DMs. Wink, wink. Our address for email, which was a popular form of written electronic communication in our time, omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Also, our Futurelings Facebook page has become a riot. Absolute zoo. Thousands of people complaining about how we don't know the difference between evaporated and condensed milk. There's only a few people doing that. Most people are celebrating our entire catalog. We're the Hermione Funko Pops yep. atop their altars. That's right. I do not for a moment doubt their commitment to sparkle motion. Uh, you can also send things to us. Now, someone sent something to me here, and they claimed it didn't arrive. P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I haven't checked the old dead drop in a couple weeks. I think what you need to do, though, is address things to care of Ken Jennings. It may have been that they sent it back because it was because the person addressed it to me. I think I get stuff at that address addressed to you and a whole bunch of other people. What All was right. it? Do you know what it was? Yeah, it was a it was a computer mouse. I was complaining somewhere that I uh, that I don't like every kind of mouse. I just like a certain kind of mouse. I don't like mice with buttons. I just want the one big mouse. Mouse racist, got it. And someone on the internet was like, I have one of those mice. I'll send it to you. They sent it to this, and then they then it returned to them. So, Oh, it got returned? Got returned to them, yeah. My guess is they either wrote the address wrong, or at one point in one outro, one of us said it wrong. <laughs> yeah, or maybe they didn't put enough postage on it or something. But anyway, I still only have one mouse. I will come to your house and glue your mouse buttons together. And you just have one big button. Oh, I don't want that. No, no, no. It's, uh, it's too late. The offer's been made. Merry Christmas. All right. Listeners from our vantage point here in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization 
will survive. We hope and pray that it's not nuclear winter yet, but it's nuclear late autumn. It's nuclear okay. November. All right. Winter may be near. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, could be our final word to you. But if Providence and Sinterklaas allow, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs> <laughs>